Luke, you uh, steered me in the right direction. So just to tell you a little bit about myself, I, uh, I've done a number of things, and um, among those things, I was an Army chaplain for 24 years with the Army National Guard. I was in Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and I got along, uh, around a little bit, and now I have a part-time counseling practice. And um, Mark had mentioned that I was a, uh, a biblical counselor. And um, interestingly enough, there is no such thing as a uh, Bible counselor uh, or a Bible counselor outside of a pastor. Because a pastor takes um, the Bible and people come to a pastor for guidance. And the pastor tells the person, gives them uh, counsel out of the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. Now, what I tell people when they come to my practice, I have a very small practice, and I'm not trying to drum up any business. Trust me, I'm maxed out uh, at 10. I don't want any more. I'm retired. I'm not really retired, but I'm retired enough where I don't punch a clock anymore. I don't want to punch a clock. I'm 63 going on 64. And one of the hallmarks that I've decided for success is, even though I stay very busy, I don't want to punch a clock. I want room in my life to be able to schedule but what I tell people is, is that what I do in my practice is for anybody who's looking for counseling at any point, I tell people that whatever I do in my counseling practice, it should honor the Word of God. It shouldn't contradict. Anything I say should not contradict the Word of God. In fact, it should dovetail the Word of God. And I really found it interesting, as a counselor, how much of the Word of God guides my counseling. And, it, and it's really a blessing to me. So when I'm preaching today, if I sound a little bit like a counselor, it's because I'm meaning to sound a little bit like a counselor because I believe that what we think and what we feel guides how we behave. And with that being said, our thinking needs to be right. And how we feel about things, James Dobson wrote a book called Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And um, I say to people, that, no, you can't trust your emotions. Now, this isn't going to be a counseling sermon at all, but I do believe that when we come to church, when we sit under the Word of God, when we read the Word of God, when we pray to God for understanding, this helps us in our life to think right, and if we think right, we're going to feel right. And if we don't feel right, then we need to go back to what we're thinking about things. And God has a lot to say about how we think in the book of Philippians, right? That we're to think on things that are good, that are pure, lovely, of good report. So just to keep in mind, if I sound a little bit like that, that's, that's why. I was a graduate of Tennessee Temple Seminary, and um, they closed about seven years ago, and all of my records were transferred over to Piedmont Bible College, so I don't know if I'm an orphan or not with that one, so I'm still trying to figure that out. But, uh, and then I retired back in, uh, in 20, uh, 2012 from the military. And Mark and I, uh, although we didn't directly serve together, we, we know each other uh, through mutual acquaintances. And then um, we've, uh, we've run into each other since then. But let's have a word of prayer, please. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that the people sitting here, including myself, that as we examine your word, that we would be encouraged, 
in our hearts, Father, to love you more, and especially to appreciate what we have and not to forget what a difference it makes to have Christ as our Savior, you as our Heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit, to help us, to guide us, to power us through life in a way that's hard sometimes, but not because we did anything wrong, just because we're following you and it brings you glory, which is something that we can feel good about even when life gets difficult. I pray, Father, this morning that you would be pleased with all that is said and done in Jesus' name. Amen. My sermon this morning is on why I'm glad that I'm a Christian. The Bible talks about, in the book of Jeremiah, that we're supposed to remember the pit that we've been taken from. Now, how many in here have been saved as a child? Okay, how many saved later in life? Probably, okay. It's a, and for us that have been saved later in life, it's a little easier for us to remember the pit that we've been taken out of through Christ. I think when it's, it's a tremendous blessing to be saved young in life, but to be able to remember how difficult life is when you're taken out of the pit when you're 20 years old, which is, uh, Millie and I got saved, what, Millie and I, 19, 20 years old, somewhere in there. We got saved at different times in our life, but probably within about a year of each other. But I remember the pit that I was taken out of. We were married when we were 17 years old, and um, I remember what my life was like without Christ in it. I remember my life without being born again. And the natural tendency is for us as believers to forget what life was like before we got saved. We're like the Israelites. We think about those leeks that we're leaving behind those, I don't know, an onion variety out of Egypt, and we're going into the into the promised land, we tend to have a bad sense of history. We start thinking about the good things before we were saved. We forget about the bad things. And I'm not going to ask you to remember the bad things. I've got my bad things, and you've got yours, and your bad things are none of my business. And well, Most of my bad stuff, it's between me and the Lord, and sometimes between me and my wife, if it affects her. But... Um, That being said, remembering and keeping in mind, cultivating an attitude of gratitude towards God. Now, we live in very troubled times, very negative times. It's very easy for us to take our eyes off of God and to feel like life really isn't going the way that we want it to go. do Do you feel right now, I mean, do you have this sense of the devil just keeps winning victory after victory, and we just can continue to lose uh, ground. I think of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, and we were rejoicing over that, but babies are still dying in abortion clinics. But it's a good thing that Roe v. Wade was overturned, but there's so much more that needs to be done. But we, um, we're starved for victories. We we expect the Supreme Court to make the wrong decisions. We, we expect uh, our president to make the wrong decisions. 
we expect our Congress to serve themselves and not serve us. And this isn't a political statement. It's just a, a sense of demoralization that can affect us spiritually, where we're, we're praying to God, we're trying to figure out the world that we live in, and it's just hard because God is sovereign. But why are these things happening to us? And 63 years old, I can tell you, I've never lived in times like these. These times are unprecedented, but in unprecedentedly wicked times, the opportunities to do good in our lives are so much greater. When is it? Uh, when is light the dark? Uh, when is light the brightest? It's right before sunrise, right? That's when the light really shines, and we have tremendous opportunities in these times to shine in the lives of our neighbors and the lives of our children and the lives of our peers, co-workers, those that we work for, and those that are seated around you. So that being said, I want to talk about my garden, get things going this morning. Um, I decided last year to put in a garden, and I looked at a piece of ground that I had mowed many, many times. It had grass, and it was perfect. Well, it wasn't perfect because I had to mow it, but it, was, it went along with the rest of the yard. And I decided that I was going to dig it up uh, 15 feet wide and 20 feet long. And I'm going to read some of this because I do a little better when I read. I'm not trying to prove any kind of pulpit skills here, but I don't want you thinking, where's Don going with this? Because he wasn't saying that a minute ago. Okay, so last year... I wanted a garden. I measured it. I tilled it. In fact, I was so proud I tilled this garden because I tilled it with a rototiller that I got from my government check that they, not the one you, know, you get every month, but not that kind of check. But you remember we got that check from the government, the one where just because, and President Trump signed his name to it. And I mean, I actually copied that. But I went out, and I didn't even tell my wife that I bought this rototiller, but when you buy a rototiller just because you've got to have one, if you don't use it, you'll look kind of silly. So I told my wife, I'm going to put a garden in, and I'm getting a rototiller, and I'm going to till that ground. It was a front-end rototiller, and it didn't work as one of the, you know, the rear-tine rototillers that go down deeper. So I was going back and forth like I was on some kind of information highway or something, you know, like... Like surfing the internet, I'm going back and forth across that 15 by 20 space because my rototiller wouldn't go down deep enough. And I'm like doing this with it, trying to, ah, you need to get on a little deeper. But anyways, so I put my government check to work. And Oh, by the way, when you get a government check, the government does not have any extra money. They don't have a bank account. They have a credit account. And the backers of that credit account are all of you if you pay taxes. So I figured... I'm going to pay for this sooner or later. So I tilled it. I added sand to break up the clay. I weeded it. I watered it. Threw some seeds in the ground. And quite honestly, there weren't many seeds because the plants the, that I had under my grow light, they died. And uh, I thought I could leave them outside when I was on vacation, but it didn't rain enough. turned out that it was a drought the week that I was gone. So I... I went to uh, Dill's Greenhouse, and I bought some really cool plants, and I planted those and planted some seeds. 
and I weeded it some more. <sighs> and one day I was walking through Myers Supermarket, and uh, the vegetable bins started looking really good to me. I thought, why did I plant that garden? This is on sale this week. I can, I can just buy my stuff. You know, what am I? You know, so I was starting to doubt a little bit. However, the point that I'm making is I knew that that garden was, it wasn't just about getting anything out of it. It was learning how to, how to grow things, how to do something new, how to, how to care for uh, the, the produce that came out of it. It was a learning experience, and it was hard. And I think that our lives are kind of like that garden. We, uh, God tells us when he saves us, uh, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, especially even in, in verse 10, uh, for by grace are you saved uh, through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship. I was saved to tend to, to God's garden. You know, Adam, a lot of times... And I had the mistaken idea that, that Adam and Eve really didn't have a job in the Garden of Eden. But they actually did. Adam tended, and Eve as well, but Adam tended to the garden. But there weren't any weeds in it. And if there were animals in that garden, they didn't go around attacking each other or Adam and Eve. But man always had a job. But we have a spiritual garden to tend to because we are his workmanship. When you got saved, God began a spiritual work in your life. You know, in Philippians, um, he who has begun a good work in you will perform that work until the day of Christ. Do you know that God is not satisfied with you today? Do you know that? God will never be satisfied with who you are. He is always going to be working on something in your life. Always. He loves you. You are his child. He extends you grace. He forgives you. As a parent loves their child, uh, a parent doesn't throw his child out because his, parent, because his child fails. Because... Even when a child has a misstep, the parent realizes that the child is trying. The parent loves the child, encourages the child, gives the child a break because the parent does not want to discourage the child. If this Bible is not looked at correctly, this can resemble a big rule book where it's all law and it's no grace. Now, what, what does the Bible look like when it's all law and no grace? It's condemnation. It's if you keep the rules, you won't be punished. That's where legalism comes in. But when we know, understand what God's grace is, no matter how deep your sin may be today, whatever secrets that you carry that bring you uh, shame and guilt, God loves you. And the devil will tell you that you are no good, you will never please God, so why even try? 
But Jesus Christ constantly reaches out to us, takes us where we are. Has God ever revealed to any of you a big list of all of the things that he wants you to straighten out in your life? How long do you think that list would be? I mean, for you to be perfect. I don't even want to start to count. I don't even like to think about it. One of the toughest things about my life is not my outward walk. It's my attitudes. It's that inner life that I have. When I get cut off in traffic or when I'm in Walmart and somebody gets that card in front of me or when people don't dress as nice as I think they should dress or when I start getting a little bit high-minded because I forgot the pit that God has brought me out of. There are so many things when we think about it. We can do great outwardly, but that inward battle, and Paul talked about that inward battle. He talked about how, um, you know, oh, wretched man that I am. You remember that in Romans 7? Oh, wretched man that I am. That wasn't rhetorical. Paul was talking about um, his need for God in his life, even as an apostle of apostles. He still had this abiding sense of failure spiritually, even though he had excelled all of his peers as far as being an apostle. So even Paul would identify with the fact that God is working in his life. But what does he say after, oh, wretched man I am? He talks about giving glory to God because in his mind, he serves the law of God, but in his spirit, he serves Christ. And that power comes from the Holy Spirit. So some of the reasons that I have five reasons that I'm glad to be a Christian. And the first one is, is that I can face life without having to drink or take drugs. However, I do like junk food. I'm working on it, and, but I just love junk, junk food. Um, the Bible talks about Epicureans, people who say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. These are people without hope, and you may know some of them. And you may be in that position. Uh, We can be in a place in our life where life just isn't worth living. It's no fun. It's all work. People take me for granted. Uh, You know, we all die in the end. And uh, so why not eat, drink, and be merry? Why not have fun? Why not go out and seek pleasure? Uh, I I work with people that, uh, that have drug problems. And they tell me about some of the beliefs that they have. It's like, you know what? If I don't do drugs, and I'm just telling you this because I want you to appreciate just this one thing about, about the life that's, that's pursuing God. I take drugs because if I don't take drugs, all my friends take drugs. And if I stop doing drugs, I'll be lonely because my friends that do drugs... If I'm not doing drugs, they don't want me around. Um, 
I do drugs because of things like, well, I'm just not enough without drugs. Uh, people take drugs because they've been hurt, they've been traumatized. They're trying to kill an inner pain, a pain that really that God can reach into and pull out of that person, but they can't do it themselves. There are a lot of reasons why people drink. Uh, you talk about the Stoics. Paul addressed the Stoics at Mars Hill in Greece. You know, why, you know, in the military, Mark will get this, you know, we're trained to be Stoics. Push your feelings down. And that's okay sometimes. But if we push our feelings down too hard, guess what? The harder we push down on our feelings, the harder it is to get those feelings out. Now, there's a place for pushing down feelings. There's a place to grieve. There's a time to cry. There's a place for that as well. But I don't need to push my feelings down. I can be alive in Christ. I don't need to be afraid of my feelings. Well, how many in here would say that emotions are bad? Or emotions, are there bad emotions out there? No. There's only a bad use of emotions. We have the idea that God gave us, we understand that he gave us emotions. There's a bad use for emotions. Every human emotion that we have, there's a good application to it. God did not give us any bad emotions. We uh, can trust our emotions as long as they are in line with the word of God. I can trust my counseling as long as it's uh, honoring the word of God. So the second point that I like to make about why I'm happy to be a Christian, I'm glad to be a Christian, is I have a better grasp on reality. Now, how many of you think that you really have a good grasp on reality? Is anybody ever, would, is there anybody in here that's never had a delusion? It's okay. Is there anybody in here that's never had a delusion? You can trust me. You ever wake up from a bad dream? And you're sort of shaking your head, wondering, you know, wow, that was really bad. And you slowly wake up, and you realize it was just a dream. It was just a nightmare, and it really didn't happen. That's a sense of a delusion. I believe what I'm about to say with all my heart. I don't think there's a person in here who is not delusional at some level. Now, what's a delusion? A delusion is believing something against contrary evidence. So, would everybody say at some point that they've been delusional about You don't have to raise your hand, but think of this. Have you ever thought something about somebody and it was entirely not true? You believe that somebody was doing something bad to you and they weren't? They had pure motives? but you just built something in your own mind, thinking based upon the evidence that you had that whatever you believing was true. You see, the problem with life is, is that we go through life and we usually don't have complete evidence as to what we tend to believe. 
We have to fill in the gap sometimes. We have to take actions. We have to make decisions based upon the available action that we have or information we have at the time because we have to take action. There's not a person in here that has perfect knowledge. But when we look at hindsight and we look back and we say, how many times have you said, you know, I want to do a do-over. If I could have done it again, I would have done things differently. Anybody in here that is a parent will say that at some point. Okay, so as a therapist, I'm not trying to label anybody in here as being having any psychotic delusions. This is no psychological trick. But the point is, when we realize that we have the word of God that gives us pure, unadulterated truth, it gives us a guide that we can go by, that we can live by, we can think by, we can feel by. And one of the things that's said in our society is that's really abused. You'll see somebody at a rock concert say to everybody, you know, I love all of you, right? Well, what does that look like? If I pay $100 to go hear somebody sing, and that person tells me that he loves me up on that stage, I don't go to rock concerts, don't worry. But it could be Andrew Rue or somebody like that. If any of you ever listen to him, he puts out great music, really good stuff. But how do you measure that? If that guy out there, and I've been listening to his music, and I paid my $100, and he says that he loves me, how do you measure that? Can I call him? Hey, Andrew, I'm broke down in the middle of nowhere. Can you come and pick me up and fix my tire? Do you think he's going to show up? I'm not even going to get through to him. I'm not even going to have his phone number, but he loves me. But how do we learn about love? Does the Bible talk about what love is? Yeah, it sure does. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not seek its own. Love does not conjure up wrongs done against us. The Bible tells me what love is. I can listen to a song on the radio and everybody talks about love. But the type of love that the Bible talks about, that is reality. If a patient, if a person, well, just ask you this question. If a person isn't being patient and kind with me, does that mean that they don't love me? Well, somebody can love me or I can love somebody else. Do we have married people in here? Have you ever fought with your spouse? Did you feel in love when you were fighting with your spouse, when you knew you were right and your spouse was wrong? No, you didn't feel like you were in love. Love is actually, according to the word of God, it promotes the best in other people, even if it means you have to speak truth to that person and they're not going to like you very much. You know, one of the worst things that parents can do to their kids, even though they love their kids, is to indulge their kids. I'm going to indulge my child so that my child will, will like me. My child will love me. But the Word of God tells us that we're to bring our kids up in the admonition, the nurture of the Lord. We are not to raise our children in a way where we are courting their affection. The affection will come in due time. But... 
That's just one thing that the Word of God says about love. And I can compare what a person says against the Word of God, and the Word of God sheds light on whatever is going on in my life. John 8.32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Bible only talks about men and women, boys and girls, in the Bible. There's nothing in between. The truth is that genetically, we're either male or female. And the Word of God bears that out. But how many people are wandering around, wondering if, wandering around, wondering, am I a boy, am I a girl, am I a man, am I a woman? The mind, if it is not, if it is not connected to the Word of God, can fall into a very dark state. And a person can become delusional. But when we read the Word of God, when we um, honor the Word of God, when we act upon the Word of God, we have a sound mind. And how important is a sound mind? How many people do you see around you that their minds are not sound? because they do not know what the truth is. The truth, according to God, is not subjective. It is not your truth, and I've got my truth. There's only one truth. What I really liked about being, uh, well, believing the word of God. I, I had this, this boss in Saudi Arabia. His mother and you wouldn't know him, and I can't even remember half of his last name. But his mother used to um, expose him to uh, the teaching of Billy Graham on Sundays when he would visit her. He had a problem with Christians. And he had a problem with me because I was National Guard. I was reserve. He was active duty. I was doing an augmentee tour in Saudi Arabia. The active duty needed a chaplain. And the active duty guys kind of looked down and Mark, I'm sure you could attest to that, Somehow we were like junior partners. So he decided one day that he was going to start doing individual PT with me. He was going to run with me because as a National Guard guy, that meant I was out of shape because I'm not active duty and, you know, hoorah and all that stuff. And we did our run, and I always did what he did, but for whatever reason, I'm a little on the heavier side, but he looks at me and he says, he says, Chaplain, he says, we're in Saudi Arabia, and we are surrounded by millions of Muslims. He said, are all those people going to hell that don't believe in Jesus? Very easy answer. What does the Bible say? I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. If you believe the word of God, if I believe the word of God, that's the end of the discussion. Muhammad isn't going to get anybody there. Buddha's not going to get anybody there. Um, you name it. No world religion is going to get anybody anywhere if we believe the word of God. Now, is it hard to accept the fact that Jesus is the only way? Yes, it is, because we want to exercise compassion towards people. It's not loving to say, you know what, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to burn in hell. And, you know, I'm going to roast 
marshmallows up in heaven over, you know, the flames. That's not loving. That's not kind. We don't want that. But we live with the tension of God's word. And, you know, when I, when I open the word of God, if I've strayed away from God, it's hard to read the Bible. Would you agree with that, that, that when we stray and we get too busy or our priorities are out of line, that unless you're reading the book of Chronicles or something like that, you know, I mean, think about the book of, you know, I never read the book of Chronicles where somebody begets somebody else, generation, generation, it really convicted me of sin, quite honestly, but, you know, but it's there, it's part of history, it's important. But when we look into the word of God, the word of God looks into us. One of the reasons why it's so important to read the Bible is, is if we are sinning and our heart is getting hard, we're either going to keep reading that Bible and we're going to change or we're going to move away from the we're going to move away from the word of God. But part of getting a better grasp on reality is I have to read the word of God. Now, would anybody in here agree that it's hard to consistently read the word of God? You just pick it up every day and it's just, "Oh, I'm going to read the word of God today. I'm not going to watch my favorite show. I'm I'm not going to take a nap. Um yeah. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to consistently read the Word of God. And I'm not talking about just, just moving my eyes across the lines. Because when I was in seminary and I was given 900 pages in the Bible to read, my eyes were moving, but my mind wasn't engaged. But to sit and devotionally read the Word of God. You see, for us to have a good grip on reality, we have to read. God's love letter to us. We have to hide his word in our heart. It doesn't come by osmosis. Now, being here in church and hearing the word of God, that also plays into it. Just the fact that all of you are here this morning, what did you have to overcome to be here? You could have been so many places, but you are here. You're making a testimony that it's important to be here. You're part of a community of believers you recognize, like Hebrews 10.25 says, that, that you need to assemble, that you need to encourage each other. You need to encourage each other. And how do you do that? Part of that is, is you encourage yourself in the Word of God, sharing the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, giving testimony to God as well. 1 Corinthians 13.12 talks about our perception of the world that we live in. It says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I know even as also I am known. Has anybody ever been to heaven? Hope not. We'd have to go back to delusions, but how much do we really know about heaven? We don't know much, do we? I read about it. I read in Revelation about it. I, I know that, uh, that Jesus said that he goes to prepare a place for us. But the truth is, is that there are a lot of things that we don't know about because God just didn't feel it was important enough for us to understand that. But I know enough about heaven to know that I want to go there. I know enough about God. I want to be with him. And I want to be there forever with him. Now, there are people that will say, 
I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends are going to be. Their minds are darkened. But even at best, you know, we look through a glass darkly. You now, the mysterious things belong to God. There are things in this Bible, just to talk about a grasp on reality, there are things that we're never going to understand on this earth. There are things that God has put into this Bible not to further your understanding by just gaining knowledge about the world you live in. He's put things in the Bible to get you and I to think about the world we live in, the life we're leading. You can take something like um, predestination versus free will. There are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle on that one. Now, I believe in predestination. I, don't, uh, I believe once saved, always saved. I believe in the perseverance of the saints, not because the saints are so good, but because he that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of the Lord. Christ is never going to abandon me, and I know that. But there are people that love the Lord that believe that you can lose your salvation. Now, you may say if somebody believes you can lose your salvation, they've got to be a bad person. Quite honestly, I might trust a person who believes he can lose his salvation, even though I don't agree with them more than somebody who believes they can never lose their salvation. Now, why is that? The guy that's afraid a little bit that if I go too far off the beaten path, I might not make it into heaven. He's trying a little harder. But what about the person that's saying, you know what, once saved, always saved, you know, I'm I'm good. God's grace is greater than, than my sins. I'm okay. Now, I'm going to try to persuade the guy that believes he can lose his salvation. I, I want to persuade him to have a healthy, accurate view of God's grace, the greatness of God's grace. It's a big deal that people understand that when they're a child of God, adopted into his family, that, that, that they're never going to be forsaken. It's comforting to know that God's grace, his atonement is greater than any sin that I can do. But at the same time, you know, that's just people disagree on things. You ever talk to a Christian where they're pretty solid on most things, but then they believe something really kind of crazy that just like, how in the world can somebody believe that? If it doesn't affect uh, the fundamental truths of the word of God, if it's just some idea that I've got to pray ten times to get forgiven by God, um, I'm going to kind of let that go. You know, I'm not going to split hairs. You know, great, you want to do that? Fine. But the truth is important. Now, the reason that I keep turning these cards over is because I don't trust myself. Because like I said, I, you know, I don't have ADD. And I, I work with people that do have ADD, like attention deficit disorder. And I don't have ADD. I can diagnose ADD. However, there are a couple windows in there that I hit pretty hard. Like, I can get distracted a little bit. You know, I'm preaching. I got my sermon on. You know, if I don't stick with my cards, and next thing I'm over here, you know, squirrel. I forget keys. And my wife can attest to this. I can put my keys down. 
And a minute later, I can't remember where, maybe 10 seconds later, I can't remember where they put them, where I put them. So, I think it's important for us to understand our weaknesses a little bit. What do you think? Is it okay? Is everybody smart about everything? I have a swimming pool. Anybody ever had a swimming pool? Vicki, I know you have a swimming pool. Every time I go to the pool place, I say, well, you know, my water's clouding up, and I don't get it. Well, you go to do this. And I do that, and it's fine for a while. My water clouds back up again. Well you got to do this. And I go and buy that, and I put it in the water, and I'm okay again. You know, it's just some point I just want to say, man, why don't you tell me everything at once? It would be a whole lot easier for me. But kind of how the way it is. So do we have to figure everything out in life? Well, the Word of God tells us the basics. The Word of God tells us things that we need to understand, things about what is right, things about what is wrong. Ways to love God, ways to worship, ways to address other people when we need to confront them because they're doing something that's going to hurt them or somebody else. And um, then there are other things that aren't so clear cut. And as a believer, I have the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean that I have the Holy Spirit? And I'm not going Pentecostal, but we as believers, sometimes we're so afraid of being stigmatized as going too far in one direction that we neglect the things of God. The Word of God tells me, in terms of how I can have a better grasp on reality, I can pray to God and ask God to guide me in situations that are too difficult for me to figure out on my own. You ever been in a situation like that? Where you just can't figure something out and you, and you need to do something. You need to address something. One of those areas, and uh, I think I see some grandparents in here. Your grandparent tell, or your grandchild tells you something about your child's home that isn't illegal. It's, it's just not perfect. You know, I can go in there and I can address, you know, maybe, maybe the kids don't eat breakfast until 9 o'clock and you think that at 8 o'clock the kids should eat breakfast or they shouldn't watch this TV show or shouldn't be playing with Ralphie, whatever the case may be. These things are important because in life, It's not always about doing the right thing. I need the Holy Spirit to guide me, to show me how to do the right thing. How many times do we do the right thing in the wrong way, and in the end it causes just as much trouble as if we would have done the wrong thing? Has that ever happened to anybody else in here? Does the Holy Spirit speak to you? Do you get that? still small voice, not like I'm talking to you, but you just get this epiphany of something you might have been doing or thinking that was totally wrong. And God just in a second gives you this understanding. And it can be a real life changer. A man can have 
hatred in his heart for his wife. A wife can have hatred in her heart for her husband and um, or for a boss. And God just might give you a glimpse of something about that person that helps you to see that person just a little bit differently, that just changes everything. You have compassion all of a sudden. And God just, just tears all that stuff away in a split second. Getting arthritis, getting a little older, can't snap the fingers as much as I used to, but that's what I tried to do. Um, that's just one of the things the Holy Spirit does. How about reading our Bible? Do we need God's help when we read the Bible? We need people to go to seminary. We, we need learned teachers who rightly divide the word of truth. But I still need the Holy Spirit to guide me when I'm reading my Bible into the knowledge that I need to live godly. See, because one of the big questions that looms over us is how shall I live? How shall I then live in light of God's truth? And one of the areas, really, that we can get into trouble if we're not guided by the Holy Spirit is in the way that we interpret things. I'm just going to throw this out here. So, what does Matthew 18 say if I've got a problem with another Christian? What am I supposed to do? Go to them, right? Between me and that person. What if it's another man's wife? Should I just go up to her and say, look, you know, I think you should be doing things a little differently here. Do you think that's a good idea when that woman has a husband? I don't think so. We have to be students of the Word of God. We've got to do our part. We lean on the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. But I still apply common sense to things. I don't want anybody coming up to my wife and saying, you know, it's like, dude, talk to me. Don't talk to her. So, but how many things do we take out of context? Because we're not thoroughly uh, indoctrinated to the teachings of the Lord. Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is that true? Because if it's true, and it's absolutely true, taken out of context, it means if your child strays, you as a parent have done wrong. Well, you can say, well, you know, when, they're, when he's old, he's just not old yet. Well, I don't know about that one. It's a biblical principle. And what it means is, is that we have a lot of influence over the children in our home. It means through the power of example, through discipline, godly discipline and training, that we can have a great impact on our child. But that child has free will. We have to study the Word of God hard to be able to put things in context. Now, you husband, do we have any husbands in here? today? Anybody? Anybody claiming they're married to the woman next, <laughs> next to them? Okay. It's like you don't trust me. You're like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? It's not a trick question, but I'm not picking on the wives today. I'm just picking on the husbands. The Word of God, one of the reasons why I'm just glad to be saved, glad to be a Christian, is because I can be a better husband to 
my wife. And what does the word better mean? It doesn't mean perfect. It just means better than before. So it's like, I'm not telling you men to be perfect, but what I am saying is that the word of God tells me how my heart is supposed to be towards my wife. I am supposed to love my wife as what? As Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself for it. Well, how did he give himself for the church? He died for the church. And dying for our wives can also mean dying daily to self. But for you men, it is not to indulge your wives and to deny God to be in favor with your wife. But it, you know, if you're loving your wife as Christ loved the church, how much better are we going to be as husbands? Because trying to follow Christ's example, I'm going to be better for my wife. I said not perfect. Now, I want to throw this in there on the counselor's side. We were all born with personalities. Christ will not change your personality. If you were grumpy before you got saved, chances are you're probably going to be a little grumpy after you're saved. You maybe have a few rough edges. I might fit into that category sometimes. I don't know, but probably. But what it means is, It means that you promote the highest good for your spouse. One of the things I do in counseling is is I teach couples to train their husbands, train their wives to be better for each other. But I tell the wife, I say, train your husband to be better for you, a better husband. But that doesn't mean that you try to change him as a person, personality but you inform him. Yes, when it's my anniversary, I don't want to go to McDonald's and order a Happy Meal. I want to go to White Castle, you know, like him. <laughs> Whatever they can, you know. But, but, but that's how husbands and wives can love each other and be, and be better for each other. I'm supposed to love my wife. But you know, there's nothing in there that says, I'm supposed to love my wife if she's perfect. And I'll tell you, as as a husband, if I take this Bible and I make demands of my wife and I say, well, thus saith the Lord, it says right here in section B, part two, that you're supposed to do that. Well, if the one doing that is pointing a finger there and pointing one here, chances are she's going to be thinking, well, you know, I think you need to start with yourself. And love me. It doesn't mean that she doesn't have a responsibility to show respect towards her husband, but I guarantee you somewhere in the recesses of that woman's heart, she's thinking, you know what? You sure can set the example. And the husband is the head of his home. That is his responsibility. If I'm not going to follow the Bible, if I'm not going to set Christ up as a head of my home, why should my wife respect my authority if I don't respect God's authority? Why should she respect my opinion if I don't respect God's opinion? The nice thing about how God tells me to love my wife is 
I can say to my wife, and I have a godly wife and I'm thankful for her, but I can say to her, what does God say about this? Because if Christ is the head of our home and we're both moving towards Christ, we can say, okay, if we violated any biblical principles, you know, if Christ is the head of the home, thus saith the Lord, that does, of course, correction. Because I can say, you know what, I'm in sin, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and then I can get to tracking uh, spiritually what I need to do. So the fourth area that I'm really uh, glad um, that I'm a Christian is in the area of uh, raising children. God tells me how to treat children. And I believe it's in Ephesians 6, 4. You know, how do we treat children? You know, there are a lot of angry children out there. And they're angry because they believe they're getting bullied, that they're being treated unfairly, and they carry anger. You know, why is that child so angry all the time? Well, is that child being raised in a godly way? One of the mistakes that I made raising my kids was I would tease my kids, and I would make them angry. But I'm supposed to bring my kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, for anybody in here who's a grandparent who thinks, well, you know, I messed that one up, I don't have any more opportunities, I have grandchildren. And when my grandchildren come to my house, I'm very careful to nurture them. To, I, I have a hand puppet at home, and my granddaughter's married this hand puppet five times. She's seven. I don't get that. But she's, his name's Monk Monk. But I decided one day, and I, I said, Monk Monk's a scoundrel. I'm trying to teach her mm, what kind of person not to marry. You know, Monk Monk, he runs around, and he doesn't pay bills, and he's always... So one day I got the... I, th- I think it was somewhat inspired by the Lord. My wife may disagree. But I decided one day Monk Monk was going to get saved. And... I told, I act, you know, I had Monk Monk inform my granddaughter that he got saved and he doesn't do that bad stuff anymore, and Jesus is now in my heart. Now, you may say that's a little irreverent, you know, using a hand puppet, puppet to say, you know, to teach salvation, but it's nurturing that child. It's admonishing that child. It's not disciplining that child to punish. One of the things that I learned when I worked at Ohio Guidestone was, a timeout? A timeout is just, just putting a child aside. It's not to punish the child. It's to help the child learn to regulate his or her emotions. If the child, you got three minutes, say for a three-year-old in that chair, we're teaching the child how to deal with life. Okay, you don't like being in the chair. You did this. Calm down. When you're calmed down, I'm not saying it's the only way you can discipline a child, but disciplining a child is always about instilling things in the child so the child can learn self-discipline as opposed to having to be disciplined by society. I'm going through a series here, so I I teach this as a series, so I'm going to leave off on that fifth one because I've thrown a lot at you this morning. I hope I did. In fact, Mark told me I only had to preach for 20 minutes if how dare you? 
I get to be up here and all you got to sit there and look at me. Well, if you're nice people, you'll do that for me. But anyway, in which you are. And you, and you love the Lord. But, and I, I appreciate it. But I do realize that I'm asking you to take your time to sit here and listen to me. And this is also the Lord's time. And, and I try to keep that in mind. So in closing, how is your spiritual garden today? Have you remembered what life was like before you got saved? Have you forgot about the disadvantages of walking away from God, disregarding his word, and uh, doing the Frank Sinatra and the Elvis thing, you know, doing things my way? And I'd ask you, if you're doing that, how's that working for you? Because it works for a while, but it always breaks down because there's moral gravity in the world, and God put it there, and he will not be mocked. Are you, do you rely as much on your devotional life, that's prayer, that's Bible reading, praising God, do you rely as much upon that as other people feeding you? Because just coming in and getting a sermon once a week from a preacher is not enough. Life is going to come at you hard. You need to pray. Be prepared spiritually. Whether you like it or not, you are in a battle. The devil hates you. He not only wants to demoralize you and derail you, he wants to destroy you. Hiding the word in God's heart. Praying to God. Praising God. Asking him for help is something that we not only need to do every day, but we need to do throughout the day. Do I do that every day? No. But have you ever gone through the day and you feel like you're just being beaten up? And then you pray and you say, Lord, please get the devil off my back. And God answers that prayer and you feel that oppression lift off of you. Is that, it's okay to raise your hand. Is anybody... You've experienced that. That's when you know the devil's working against you when you pray and you ask God to deliver you from that. And he does. And it's like it just breaks that tension and your day just goes differently. And the last thing I'd like you to consider and something that I really try to remind myself of. Do not forget Psalm 103.4. Do not forget what God has done for you. I'm going to close with this and then we're going to pray. 103, verse 1 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Our soul is our being, with all of our being, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases. Now, you may say that God doesn't heal all diseases. Oh, but he does. It's just sometimes the cure is death. But I don't have a headache when I'm in glory. And sometimes, I mean, there's some things we're going to be healed of and other things that death is going to deliver us from the grip of this temporary body that God has given us. But God will heal us. It's just when and how.
who redeems thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. And I want to repeat that last verse. If you are saved, he redeemed your life from destruction, from hell, and all of the ill effect of leading a life divorced from the living God, who crowns thee with loving kindness. He died on the cross for you. He gave everything. He left heaven. He took upon himself human flesh, and he is preparing a place for you. He treats you as a brother, as a sister, and there is no love that matches God's love. And then God's mercy. Has God ever forgiven you for something that you couldn't forgive yourself for? Just because he loves you and he wants to wrap his arms around you, not because you're going to break any spiritual Olympic mark, but just because he loves you as you are and not for what you think he wants you to become to be loved by him. He loves you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and I pray, Lord, that if there's somebody in here who is just discouraged, feeling like they just can't measure up and it's just not worth it or is having something very difficult going on in their lives, it could be a difficult marriage, it could be a difficult situation with a child, it can be uh, financial challenges, Lord, whatever it might be, that we would renew our strength in you, that we would realize that you have the last say. And as an eagle mounts up and soars high on your strength, Lord, may we be a people of hope that does not despair and who, who lives triumphantly because you have brought the victory already. In Jesus' name, amen.